Okay, a reading from John. (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's particularly poignant to hear this reading from John during the Christmas season. Whereas on Christmas Eve, just a few days ago, Luke introduced Jesus at his birth, John introduces Jesus at the beginning of time. The other Gospels have a more linear world. First, God creates the world. He then speaks to the world through his prophets, culminating in John the Baptist until we finally get to Jesus. But not in John. In the beginning was the Word, he says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. So John presents a vertical perspective, the descent of the cosmic Savior. And I want to flesh this idea out a little bit. Since the dawn of time, there has been a human fixation on outer space. Whether you consider it to be the heavens or the void, the cosmos holds an innate sense of wonder. Just take a drive out to the country at night and look at the stars. My nephew was camping this fall, and he walked out of his tent at night, and although no one could see him, Everyone heard him cry out, oh, wow. And it was just obvious that he was looking up. John Keats famously wrote, What is there in thee, moon, that thou shalt move my heart so potently? The final frontier invites the human heart to both marvel, but also to strive. One of the earliest accounts of striving upwards 
is the legend of Icarus, who with his father attempts to escape from the island of Crete by means of wings of feather and wax. His father warns him of hubris, warning that he not fly too close to the sun lest the heat melt them. And we know how the story goes, of course. Icarus ignores his father's instructions, and when the wax in his wings melts, he tumbles out of the sky and into the sea and drowns, sparking the idiom, don't fly too close to the sun. For the record, that is not the moral of my sermon. Little has changed when it comes to our infatuation with the celestial realm. The 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 and man walking on the moon was all over the headlines this year, prompting lots of memories of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. In 1961, Russians were actually the first to put man in space. Space at that time was still completely unknown, with all these lingering questions attached. Could it be reached? Could we survive space? But still, more existential questions. Could it be the hope of our future at a time when the world looked like a lost cause? Could we somehow shed our earthly shackles and access the divine? After the Russian cosmonaut successfully broke out of our atmosphere and into space and returned to tell the world of his findings, he said he discovered that there was no God there. I think it's interesting that among all the discoveries and accomplishments that went into getting space, they had to mention that. I think it goes to show how hungry we are to find God. The space race, you see, succeeded where Icarus's attempt failed, and still, humanity had not succeeded in accessing the divine. Of course, you don't need to be infatuated with space to know what I'm talking about. You spend all your resources, all your hopes and dreams on a mission, the thing you think will complete the puzzle of your life, the things for which you hope and strive, that job offer, your career, meeting your spouse, your retirement, the well-being of your family. While being good, at least in themselves, these things will not give you direct access to God. In fact, using these things for the underlying purposes of getting access to God will likely leave you with melted wings falling back into the sea. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with ambition or having dreams, but so often the race of human striving is a race to nowhere. And yet striving is so embedded in our nature that we simply can't seem to help ourselves. Just look at the current space race between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Or just look at your own life. So, considering all of this, where is there hope? Well, in response to Russia's statement about not finding God, C.S. Lewis wrote an article called The Seeing Eye, and in it he says this, The Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God, or heaven, by exploring space, is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters, or Stratford as one of the places. About the reaching, I am a far less reliable guide. This is because I never had the experience of looking for God. 
it was the other way around. He was the hunter, and I was the deer. Jesus, you see, is the antithesis of Icarus, when instead of man vainly ascending to the sun, the sun descends to man. The creator visits his creation. Shakespeare embeds himself into his own play as a character. Later in John's Gospel, Philip, the apostle, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. To which Jesus responds, Philip, I have been with you all this time and still you do not know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because of Jesus, we can see God, hear God, and know God in ways that were never before possible. We are given intimate access to God through his Son. And who hasn't longed for that kind of connection? Wouldn't it help to make sense of your life to know God? Well, in Jesus, the puzzle of your life has been completed. If you want to know what God is like, what his interests are, what he cares about, look no further. In fact, through Jesus, you will find even that God's main interest the thing he cares about more than anything, is you. And yet, as John says, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. When God came down, it was so far from what we expected, a helpless baby instead of a cosmic savior, that we didn't recognize him, and we received him not. The one who descended to us, you see, eventually was lifted up again, but he was not lifted up in glory. For the very hands that created the stars were nailed to a cross. And it was all done so you could have access to God, not through your achievements but through the cross on which Jesus hung. As one of the great Christmas hymns proclaims, his the doom, ours the mirth, when he came down to earth. Contrary to what we expected, access to God is not through strength, but weakness. Not in your far-off hopes and dreams, but in the places in which you feel alone and scared, tired, and guilty. These are, in fact, the places where God finds you and where you find all of God's mercy. It brings to mind the psalmist's words, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Of course, the answer to this question is found also in the Gospel of John, that God so loved the world. If everything I've mentioned has failed to connect with you, um, after this service, go watch the episode Moon Dust of season three of The Crown. I'm about to spoil the script, but the drama of the episode is too powerful to spoil. And it's a little bit of a long story, but bear with me. Here's the setting. It's 1969, and Prince Philip is enamored with the three astronauts of Apollo 11. To him... They represent men of action, men who are making a difference. 
He's glued to the television for eight straight days, watching the moon landing and the trip back. At the same time, a parish priest, Dean Robin Woods, what a name, has asked to use an abandoned building on the grounds of Buckingham Palace as a retreat center for burned-out clergy. And Prince Philip grants these priests a building to use. But the thought of these men sitting around and talking about their weaknesses makes him furious. It seems pretentious and self-pitying, and a far cry from the men of action he so admires. And to the group of priests, he says this, What your lot needs to do is get off your backsides, get into the world, and bloody well do something. Sorry for the language. He says, that's why you're all so lost. He's making an argument that there's something imperative in all men to make a mark. That action is what defines us as people. Philip invites the astronauts then to Buckingham Palace. And there's a lot of buildup because he's completely idolized these men. And when he finally meets them, he's disappointed to find that these astronauts, while very polite, are really nervous to meet him and to be in Buckingham Palace. And they're also suffering from head colds, having re-entered Earth's atmosphere. I don't know what I was thinking, Philip says later. I expected them to be giants, gods. In reality, they were just three little men, pale-faced with colds. So Philip returns to Dean Woods, the priest, and the collection of the other priests, to confess that his anger at them is misdirected frustration during a personal crisis that he's undergoing. For a while now, he has felt like a prop, like there's no substance in his life. He has an inability to find calm, satisfaction, or fulfillment, and he's exercising compulsively. But it's a race to nowhere. And on top of that, his mother, a woman of great faith, has just died. And so we get to the climax. Philip confesses that he's lost his faith. And without it, he says, what is there? The loneliness and emptiness and anticlimax of going all the way to the moon to find nothing but haunting desolation, ghostly silence, and gloom. That is what faithlessness is, he says, as opposed to finding wonder, ecstasy, the miracle of God's creation, God's design, and purpose. He then says, I'm trying to say that the solution to our problems is not in the ingenuity of the rocket or the science or the technology or even the bravery of the men. No, the answer is in here. And he points to his heart where faith resides. And in a great act of humility, Philip says, and so, Dean Woods, having ridiculed you, I now find myself full of respect and admiration and not a small part of desperation. As I come to say, help me. This moment of vulnerability would develop into a lifelong friendship between Dean Woods and Prince Philip. And the center for faith that the two men founded is still serving 50 years later. I have one more illustration. Right after Buzz Aldrin stepped out of Apollo 11's eager lunar module, he was overwhelmed by anticipation. 
he took communion. He got special permission from his church to bring up the sacraments, and so during an hour-long period of downtime, Buzz Aldrin invited everyone back in Houston, listening in on the system to give thanks in their own special way, and then he took the body and blood of Christ, knowing that it was, not, that it was shed not just for the world hovering outside his window, but for him. You see, Jesus did not die for the cosmos. He died for you. And through him, your access to God is infinite. As the Apostle Paul writes, because of Jesus, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.